0: scripture for our reading this morning or for our meditation is from 2 Corinthians 2. I will uh, read it and then we'll have a prayer. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. "'because I did not find my brother Titus there. "'So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. "'But thanks be to God, "'who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession "'and through us spreads the fragrance "'of the knowledge of him everywhere. "'For we are the aroma of Christ to God. "'Among those who are being saved, And among those who are perishing to the one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ the word of the lord thanks be to god lord we love parades of various kinds but they are often for us or for things that we've defined as valuable we want a procession this morning that is truly triumphal that takes the place every day with our hearts that are centered on christ May the words of Pastor Andrew that he shares this morning be centered on you, be an encouragement to him, and bring us closer to Christ in deep and eternal ways. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated.
1: Well, good morning. It's great to be together with you this morning and to open this portion of God's Word. I don't know how much you think about odor. Probably think about it more than we think we think about it, especially in the West. I was reflecting a little bit on odor this week and... um, you know there there are some very strong smells that i can associate in my memory do you get those can you do that most of the strong smells that i associate in my memory were are negative uh and, and i'm fairly sensitive to smell like when we had a kid throw up that that's tough i <laughs> and it's not the texture or anything it's the it's the smell and so thankfully lisa jumped in there at, at those moments. I remember being on a mission trip and uh, with a group of high school students in West Virginia and uh, helping out in this house. And man, the the smells in there, it was like kids would go in in waves and come out and, and throw up in waves, which was doubly bad. You know, it's just you, we, we have those odor associations in your mind. Sometimes you can smell something and it brings you back to a place. And if some of you, you know, love driving in the country because of the country smells. Uh, uh, and that brings you back to your childhood. You're like, I am exactly right there. Or maybe you've been to another country. And when you are in that country, just the, the odors that are there... It's a very strong sensation. Now, I I say we probably don't think about it as much now, today, especially in the West, because we have so many ways to control it. Uh, Temperature controlled, you know, so we don't have the odor. There's a reason why funerals used to be you know, two-ish days after somebody died. It's because, you know, they didn't have the temperature controlled and you had to manage that funeral before the odor uh, got into the air. Uh, you know, and you think about way back in Paul's days just how how strong the association with odor was. Got Issues of death that were a part of it. But also then things like sacrifice and all of these different things, Uh, just a very real part of life, and Paul brings it into mind this morning. I want to keep going through our our study. It's a somewhat selective study through 2 Corinthians. As we've said, there's lots of things going on. Uh, There's this theme of, of weakness, there's this theme of... Weakness versus power that we're exploring in 2 Corinthians. And, and here Paul comes back to this theme after talking about some of the, the logistics of his change of plans and working with the Corinthians. He comes back to it in chapter 2, verse 12. And he shares with them a little bit what's been going on in his life. And then he, he applies uh, the truth of the scripture to it. And there's several things that I think that God wants us to see this morning. Got them for you there in your bulletin. The reality of weakness, the totality of victory, and the diffusivity uh, of fragrance. Uh, So I want to walk through this passage with those things in mind, and we're going to end up with odor, okay? Okay. So that's, uh, that's not the main point of the sermon, but it's you know, kind of a controlling theme. So we'll walk through that. These verses, 2, 12, and 13, are, are incredibly interesting just in the way that Paul tells a story. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave... Of them the the people in Troas and went on to Macedonia seems that the timeline is something like this Paul is in Ephesus Uh, he's written to the Corinthians the this what we have here a second Corinthians remember is his fourth letter he wrote a, a severe letter to them the the third letter to the Corinthians and he hasn't heard anything back about it. Titus is the emissary. He had made plans to meet Titus in Troas, but what we hear here is that when he leaves Ephesus, which was under duress, there was a riot in Ephesus. When he leaves Ephesus and he arrives in in Troas, he can't find Titus. Uh, And this is not, you know, days of texting and Google Maps, hey, where are you? Oh, yes, I see your location. I'll go find you. Uh, This is the days of, you know, letters being carried by hand over the road. And there is absolutely no way for Paul to know where Titus is, what happened to him. And then by extension, there's no way for him to know how his letter was received in Corinth and This was just a huge issue for him. One writer puts it this way, he says, The non-arrival of Titus, the bearer of the letter of tears, or the severe letter to Corinth, intensified Paul's own uncertainty and fears concerning the Corinthians. Paul rightly sensed the gravity of the situation. Not only was the future one of his potentially most influential young churches at stake, uh, and with it, perhaps the success of the collection for the saints that he was taking up as the climax of his Aegean ministry, but his own status and freedom as the apostle to the Gentiles were the ultimate, uh, was the ultimate questions being raised by the, the test case of, of the Corinthian church. So there's a lot at stake for Paul here. You know, like, is this ministry going to work? I mean, here's Corinth, one of the most influential areas in the, the, the Roman Hellenistic world. Are they going to respond to the gospel? What's happening with Titus? How is the ministry? And, and you can see that the, the text is very descriptive. He says, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother. If you turn over to chapter 7, verse uh, 5, he says, When we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. This is a very, very difficult situation for Paul. And we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. You remember last week we said he, he came to a place of despair. And what I want us to see here with the reality of weakness is a couple of things. First of all, note just how interconnected the ministry that God gave Paul was with other people. It wasn't like Paul was just out on his own, sharing the gospel, doing this, doing that. It was so interconnected with the church in Corinth, how they would react to him, how they would receive the message. Uh, it was very interconnected with Titus, you know, with his journeys, with his well-being. So much so that it says here that when he was in Troas, there was an, there was an open door for the gospel. Paul uses that, that phrase in different places. He says, pray for us that there might be an open door for the gospel. And there was one there. I mean, he's saying, I could have shared the gospel and people I sense would have been receptive to it. But he couldn't. He he was unable to do that because his spirit had no rest because Titus wasn't there. Uh, So there's two things, and just kind of draw them together. One is the interconnectedness of you know, our lives with other people, uh, and then secondly is the limitations that when when those things are at odds when when there's no peace in those things, it it, it severely limits even somebody like Paul, who's one of the greatest evangelists that uh, Christian faith has ever known, it, it limits his ability to walk through an open door. It wasn't that the door was closed and so we went on somewhere else. There was an open door, but Paul was unable to walk through because of that. So let's think about application here. Uh, Application is, uh, one, as I've already alluded to, when we think about God's mission, we have to think about it collectively. Uh, We have to think about it in terms of a we, not an I. It's very significant. I mean, you guys are, how many of you are familiar with the term fishers of men? Uh, You've heard that before, right? Jesus calls us to be fishers of men. Most often, for an American uh, audience, fishing is something that is pretty solitary, right? You like to get up early in the morning, go out in the boat cast the line out into the water, kind of the lone angler on the end of the dock, rolling them in. It's not the way they fished when Jesus was talking about fishers of men. Fishing was a very corporate thing. They took these big nets, threw them out into the water, and then it took you know, 10, 12 guys to get around on the various sides of the net and to pull it in together. Uh, corporately. And it's at that point that they would get the the catch of fish. And and so we're a little bit inhibited by the way that we think about fishing when it comes to evangelism and sharing the gospel, when it comes to the mission of the church. We, We tend to think about it as this something that I do. But it was never meant to be that way. And this passage shows us how interdependent we are And here's something that's really important for us to think about. It's not only us as Christ Church, but it's us as we relate to the other churches in Grand Rapids that love the Lord, that relate to the other churches around the world that love the Lord and his gospel and the other, uh, not just the other churches, you know, white evangelical churches like you know, we think about ourselves, but the other folks that are in different denominations, how, how they are faring. Uh, folks of a different ethnicity or background or culture, how they are faring. We are all incredibly interconnected. And, and that's one of the things that Paul wants us to see here, or he's just, you know, showing through his own life, is just how interconnected the church is. And then to reflect back to say, we have limits on ourselves. We can only go so far. He was unable to walk through that open door. I find that really, really interesting uh, just to think about. Some people have speculated, you know, was Paul too much, you know, in his feelings? You know, was Paul too much in his own strength at this point? Was he not relying on God? And, and it could very well be. Uh, I think it's just the reality, though. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't think we need to assess blame necessarily. Paul And Paul would probably be the first to say, like, you know, I, 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 I always need to rely upon God more. I always need his strength more in my life. But the reality is, you know, when we're out of step with those around us, it just becomes really difficult for us to be faithful in following the Lord. So weakness is a reality, uh, and and we have to reflect on that in a couple of different ways. But the second thing that we need to see here, and this is the emphasis of it, is, is the but, verse 14. Now again, you might be tempted to read 12 and 13 just as background information, Uh, in terms of the text, and you say, well, the meat of this is really in 14 to 17. But notice how easily Paul goes from the gritty reality of life to a theological truth that then gives him meaning in life or brings meaning to what his life is saying. And that's something that we just cannot ever get away from. Like, you know, it's not like the, our lives are practical and lived out in this sphere, and then the Bible is theoretical or principial and lived out in this sphere. No, it's always being brought together. You know, the truths that we understand with our heads and that we accept with our hearts then are lived out into our lives, and they, they bring meaning. There's no divorce there. And, and Paul then says, look it, this is difficult And he may actually even be saying, I've failed in this area because of my limitations. But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul, in the midst of his weakness in the midst of maybe his failure in the midst of his limitation goes to a theological truth to say here's my hope and and here's the strength here's how I am going to keep moving day by day now what is he saying though what is the theological truth that he's bringing he's using an image here of the triumphere, the uh it was the, the procession that the Romans would use for a conquering general coming into the city. It was very elaborate. Here, let me just read you uh, how it was described. At the head of these processions would come the magistrates and the senate, followed by the trumpeters and some of the spoils of war, such as vessels or gold, of gold or beaks of ships, Then would come the fruit players, a head of white oxen destined to be sacrificed in the temples, along with some representative captives from the conquered territory, including dignitaries such as the king. They were often driven in chains in front of the ornate chariot of the general, the Triumphator, uh, who wore the garb of Jupiter, who was the supreme god, and carried a scepter in his left hand. A slave held a crown over his head. The victorious soldiers followed, shouting, Hail the Triumphant One. And as the procession ascended uh, to the hill of of the capital city or wherever they're going in, some of the leading captives, usually royal figures, or the tallest and strongest of the conquered warriors, were taken aside into the adjoining prison and executed sacrifices were offered upon the arrival at the temple of jupiter Uh, roman historians inform us of the two purposes of the triumph namely to thank the gods who had guaranteed the victory and to glorify the value the valor of the one who triumphed so i mean you get the sense right i mean this is a a magnificent scene you've got flute players you've got captives you've got magistrates and all of this, you've got a white oxen, and it's just this, this glorious, theme, uh, glorious scene if you're a Roman, and, and it's a glorious scene if, if you are on the victorious side, and, and Paul is using this imagery, which would, have been com- which would have been common to them, to say, here is my reality in the midst of the difficulty in life. Thanks be to God, who is the victor. Thanks be to God, who is the triumphator, who leads us in glorious procession. You saw that in the uh, forgiveness or the Declaration of Forgiveness today. You have the same image that is being invoked, where he said He disarmed the rulers in authority and put them to open shame. You see that procession of the shame. Uh, by triumphing over them in Christ and his work on the cross. So there's several things here to note. The first is this, you know, as Paul invokes this image, he wants us to see, and he's sort of preaching the gospel to himself, that Christ is the absolute victor. You know, over any Roman authority, over any... Principality or power, Christ is the victor. And so, in the face of his own limitations, in the face of, you know, this Roman world that may swallow up seemingly the gospel efforts, Christ is the victor. And he comes back to that and he says, This is what I know to be true. And sometimes we have to do that, right? In the face of Uh, our own limitations in life as we try to love uh, those in community with us well and we fail, whether it's our wife or our friend or our husband or our kids or our parents, you know, we have to come back and say, I failed, but thanks be to God who is the victor and who gives me the victory. You know, when we hear those discouraging news reports uh, about uh, the triumph of, Islam or the Boko Haram or whatever it might be, we say, thanks be to God, who always is the victor and who leads in triumph. We have our confidence there. The second thing that we need to note about this, though, is is where Paul sees himself in this. Notice he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, there's a little bit of debate over what Paul means by this. Um, And actually, the debate is a little bit one-sided. Some people have seen Paul envisioning himself as part of the conquering army. So Christ is the general. Uh, Paul is, you know, one of the lieutenants and who is following after the general. But that. Probably is actually not the picture that Paul is invoking here. Paul rather sees himself as a conquered enemy of the cross. He uses that language often in Philippians chapter 3 and, you know, a number of other places. He says we were enemies of the cross, but we have been conquered. And then think about Romans 6, 18, where he says we have become slaves to righteousness. You know, we, we were enemies, but now we have become slaves. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. We have been conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are being led now in this triumphal procession, not necessarily as one of the conquering ones, but we are being led as slaves. And this is is our freedom you see this is the upside down nature of the gospel you know again you know paul is talking to the corinthians about the differences between the super apostles who have everything together and and the power that is made perfect in weakness but these things have happened to us that we might show that we are dependent upon the mercies of christ that's what we looked at last week And and Paul is using this image of being led in slavery to emphasize the very nature of the gospel. Like if you want to be free, Paul is saying, you need to be conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And this is the place, I think, where we struggle the most as humans. Because there is just this, you know, in our fallenness, there's just this intrinsic resistance to being conquered. We want to be the potentate. We want to be the ruler. We want to have the power in our lives. But Paul is saying, look it, if you really want to understand your weakness and your limitations, if you really want to know where the power is in life, You need to become a slave to righteousness. You need to be conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in your own strength. It's not in your own ability. And part of it is because that is exactly the path. I mean, I say part of it, but really the whole of it is this is the path that Jesus took. You know, Jesus' own conquering was through defeat. We just saw that in Colossians 2, right? How was it that he triumphed over them? He triumphed over them by calling down his legions of angels and putting them to, you know, rout. That's not the story that we're in. He conquered them by the cross. You know, it was in the cross where Jesus was disrobed and hung naked where he bled out, it was in the cross where theologically he became the sacrifice of sin. It was in the cross where we see the the absolute shame, you know, the odor of death that clung to our Savior. But it was this very same weakness, foolishness, scandal, all of these are biblical words attached to the cross. It was in this that he triumphed over the forces of evil. This was Jesus' moment of triumph. And that's what gives, you know, that much makes sense of our moments. You know, as we go forward, we, we struggle with our limitations. We struggle with all of these things. But God is bigger than that. He is saying, look at bring those into the story. And we saw last week, I I am the God who raises the dead. I, I will take that weakness and I will make it victorious. I will take your failure and in its place you will find righteousness. Not that you have earned, but that I have given to you. And there's one other thing just in terms of this triumph. You saw that, you know, there was these white oxen. uh, There were these prisoners who would often be executed. And I think that that was very clear in Paul's mind. You know, part of what Paul is saying here is we are led in this triumphal procession. And we're willing. We're compelled to go to our death. We're compelled to be the sacrifice at the end of the journey. This triumphant march is only something that you take once, one historian said. Because we are being led to sacrifice. And you know, we see that in Paul's other writings, right? Where in Romans 12 1 he says, We are a living sacrifice. We are a fragrant offering to the Lord. And this is where we come to the diffusivity of fragrance. That's not an easy word to say, by the way, uh, diffusivity, but it, it is an actual word. I was like, I need a, a TY word that has to do with, uh, you know, just how the fragrance diffuses in the air. You know, part of it is we recognize that we are. The diffuser. You know, some of you maybe have a diffuser at home and you get your essential oils in there and you know they 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 are spread about the home, or maybe you just have some other scent in there to trying to cover up your burn toast or whatever it is, and you are you are diffusing these things throughout the air. And that's what Paul says we become as we, as we are enthralled. As we are enslaved to the Lord Jesus Christ, we become the diffuser of the gospel, uh, of this truth that thanks be to God. Christ is the victor. Thanks be to God. Our strength is in our weakness. Thanks be to God. It is in the cross that Jesus conquered all of our sins. And as we cling to that story, we have life, we have strength, we have joy, we have all of these things that we long for, and he says, this is who you are. You are the diffuser of that story. Now, I think it's really important here to recognize because I, you know, we could come to this and we could say, "Okay, we must do this." You know, it could really become a duty. You you have to go out now and and be the fragrance. You know, go out, screw up your determination and be fragrant for God. But we can't do that and and Paul isn't saying that. He's recognizing the reality that he is the diffuser, right? But he is saying it is Christ in me. It's what you put it's what is put into the diffuser that gets diffused. And, and, and so his his job is to be the receptacle of the gospel, is to live this strength and weakness story, and, and it will be diffu- diffused. Now, some of it, Paul is saying, it may be diffused as my life is poured out like a drink offering. He continues to go and use this term you know there is a fragrance to what paul is saying he's like it you know my diffusivity may come in my death but praise be to god because it points to the reality of what he is doing in this world it is so i am so united with christ in his sufferings do you see how it all is coming together for paul in terms of who he is and and how he lives out the person that God has made him and the life that he has called him to live. Now what does that look like for us? I I don't know. You know, I I don't know, but I I do know this. It it really challenges this notion that you know, we live these antiseptic lives that are away from pain and suffering you know that that challenges the notion that um you know that that it's all about you know what we uh y- you know how we formulate our theology and you know where we go to church and all of these things you know paul is very clear in saying that This truth, as it it gets distilled in me, is going to have have an effect in the world. And it is going to be diffused out. Now, the good news is this. I mean, it's God that does this. And, And so what I really want to point you to, I think what the Scriptures point us to, is not focusing on, you know, the how your fragrance is going out into the world, but focusing on what is the source of your fragrance because it will inevitably be going out. You have a fragrance that is being diffused right now. And and, and our, our goal, our job, our invitation is to allow that to be this great gospel story where Jesus has taken triumph over our weakness, over our sin, everything. Now, the last thing I want you to see in this, you know, the diffusivity of fragrance. One is we are the the diffuser, but secondly, note that the gospel fragrance, as it goes out, is going to be differently received in ways that are beyond our control. I remember when Lisa was pregnant, we were living over on the northwest side, uh, uh, right by a Burger King. And I kind of enjoyed the smell of Burger King. It was, uh, it was lovely, you know, you get that French fry, you know, Whopper smell, and it was like, oh yes, that's, uh, here we are. When Lisa was pregnant, though, it it became repulsive to her. Like, she could not smell Burger King, so we'd have to, like, take detours on the way home, you know. So she wouldn't smell that. And and odor can be that way, right? Particularly in a case, you, you can just become either drawn to it. Some of you feel that way about the country, right? You drive out, you smell the chickens and the cows, you're like
0: yeah that's
1: home you know others of you you smell the chicken and the cows you're like holy cow roll up the windows you know Uh, smells are that way and you got to think about this I mean we're, we're talking about all of the incense and things that are going on in the parade we're talking about captives and there was no deodorant in those days we're talking about blood we're talking about all sorts of things You know, if you were on the winning side, there's the smell of victory. But if you were on the losing side, it was nothing but the smell of death. And I think the same is true for us. You know, how we go through life as we portray the gospel for some, you know, as God opens our hearts and he allows us to smell Accurately, whatever that is, uh, it's the odor of life unto life. But the reality is, for others, it's the odor of, li- of death unto death. And you know what? We have very little control over that. So we should never take pride. Like if, if the gospel story resonates in your heart, you know, give God praise, but never take pride in that. Like it's something that you've done. You know, you're you're a better person than somebody else. You know, God has just cleared out your nasal passages so that what is actually true smells sweet to you. But let's pray for those, you know, who encounter the gospel and they're like odious. There's no joy there. And there is nothing more heart-wrenching than that. And that's why it's, you know, going back to this idea of interdependence, we, we need each other, we need each other to live out this gospel story, this strength and weakness as we go forward. Odors are very strong. And they can bring us back to a moment in time My prayer this morning is that the odor of Christ, the sweet smell of the Savior, would bring joy to your heart. For those of you who have been walking with Him for a long time, and for those of you who don't, or aren't, or haven't, my prayer, all of our prayer, is that what was formerly odious to you would become sweet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It's such a, a powerful picture of our life in Christ. Lord, we we know that it is not our own strength or our own righteousness that has brought about the ability to smell well. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who always leads us in triumphal procession. Praise be to him. Pray this all in his name. Amen.